This is recording number 10754 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the second message in the Purpose Behind the Passion series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 9, 2008. This message is titled, Restoring What Has Been Lost. your Bibles, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, or the book of Luke, the, the um, third book in the New Testament. There's a place in the Bible that kind of separates the Old and New Testaments. It's fairly easy to find, and when you get there, you're going to go to Matthew, then Mark, and then Luke. If all of that fails, then find the table of contents. But you're looking for Luke chapter 4. We're going to be uh, continuing a series of messages that we started last week called The Purpose Behind the Passion. During this month of March, we are looking at the reasons that Jesus came. Jesus' suffering at the cross of Calvary had a purpose that he identified and um, enunciated here in, it's recorded for us here in Luke chapter 4, when he stood before his hometown uh, synagogue gathering, took from the book of Isaiah and read uh, a prophecy that had been given hundreds of years before regarding the Messiah. And you have to know that everybody in the room understood these words were about the one that they longed for, the one they hoped for, the one who was the object of every uh, Jewish person's aspirations, the Messiah. They knew that these words that, that Isaiah had spoken were about the Messiah. So when Jesus got up and read from this passage that day and closed out the reading with the words that we're going to see in a few minutes, um, it was a a, a remarkable, jaw-dropping, breath-holding moment. And so these are not just idle um, kind of passive phrases that we're going to read here. They're filled with meaning and... and, uh, uh, purpose, and that was what he was describing, his purpose as the Messiah. So follow along with me, beginning at verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now he's quoting from Isaiah. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. uh, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all uh, who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, 
today, this scripture is filled, fulfilled, excuse me, in your hearing. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And as I said, this was a jaw-dropping, breath-holding moment because everyone then understood he was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. So last week we talked about how when Jesus was describing his ministry, his purpose, the purpose behind his passion, he said he had come to preach the gospel to the poor. And last week we talked about what that means, that he came to pay the debt. And then he said, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. He was describing the process of restoring what has been lost. We're going to talk all about that today, so hold on. Then he went on to say, to proclaim liberty to the captives. He was describing the fact that he had come to unlock the shackles. And then he went on to say that he had come to uh, provide recovery of sight to the blind, which has to do with lifting the darkness. And then finally... He said, to set at liberty those who are, are oppressed, those who are penned in, those who are boxed in. He had come to tear down the walls. So these are the themes of our study uh, regarding the purpose behind the passion that Jesus came to pay the debt, to restore what had been lost, to unlock the shackles, to lift the darkness, and to tear down the walls. And as I said today, we're going to be talking about the fact that he had come to restore what had been lost. Turn now from Luke chapter 4 over to Luke chapter 15. We're going to read a very familiar story. When I say very familiar, it might not be familiar to you, but it is a, a passage that's oft read and talked about a story that children learn in Sunday schools uh, all around the world. It's a, a, in, in that way, it would be familiar. If you're not a person who hangs out in church a lot, it's possible you've never uh, encountered this passage before. But, to, but today, we're going to be looking at what, the bio, what uh, uh, many people refer to as the story of the prodigal son. You'll quickly understand why that is. Beginning at verse 11. Follow along with me. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Uh, clearly, as we go along, you're going to see that as Jesus tells this parable, which is a story that he is um, telling not to confuse people but to illuminate truth. He's giving them a story that connects them to something that they can, that they, it's out of their world, they, they can understand it, something they, they know. So they can build a bridge to something they don't yet know. That's why he always, that's why he used parables. They weren't, they weren't um, uh, riddles. He wasn't trying to hide truth, but illuminate truth. And part of the truth that he's going to be illuminating today is that we have a father in heaven who is like the father in this story. Now the son, the prodigal son, this one that we have just encountered in these first couple of verses of this passage, is like us. And Jesus is saying, look, this is, this is what the heavenly father is like. This is what we're like. So follow along as we read. The son comes to the father and he's full of himself. You know how it is when you're uh, a young person and you just think you know everything and your parents know nothing and, and uh, that just brought up a lot of memories. For me. 
But anyway, so he comes to his father in a huff and he's so, you know, full of himself. And he says, Dad, I want my inheritance and I want it now. So apparently the father is fairly well-to-do because he has something that the, that the son wants in terms of material goods. And the father gives it to him. Now verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or foolish, wasteful living, is what that means. So he, he, he gets his inheritance from his father, and he's out of there. I, re- I remember our oldest daughter, a lot of you have met her. She was one of these kids that from the day she was born, she had her eye on the front door. <laughs> you know? It was like... just waiting for the day when she could be out of there. Not that she didn't love us or anything. She's just one of those kind of people that wanted to be on her own. And uh, so the prodigal son grabs his his father's inheritance and he's out the door to make his own way. But he wastes it all. I remember uh, a person who lived across the street from where Sue grew up and and this person had a, received a, an insurance settlement, and I, I believe it was, you know, in the million-dollar range or more, more. And it was amazing how fast she lost it all, just wasted it all on stupid, silly, foolish things, and was basically destitute within a very, very short period of time. I suppose you can get enough money at some point where you can't spend it fast enough. Of course, that's not going to be my problem anytime soon. <laughs> but this person, uh, the prodigal son, wastes it all, and it's gone. Now, verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. So now, not only has he wasted everything that he has inherited, but there's a famine to boot, and he's in serious trouble. Verse 15, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So he's, he has gone from being the heir to a substantial fortune now to being a swine herder and um, it's quite a dramatic fall in a very short period of time. But he has, you know, he's, he's got no other options. He finds somebody who can offer him some form of employment and he takes it. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. This is a remarkable verse. He has come to the place (laughs) where the carob pods... Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the kind of slop that pigs eat. I I can't imagine myself... Now, this is uh, clearly a product of my... Uh, um, you know, privileged American upbringing that this, I could even say this because there's lots of other people in the world that couldn't say this, but it's hard for me to even imagine coming to the place where that would look appealing in any, any stretch of the imagination. That's where he's at, where he's longing for the slop that the pigs are eating. And if he had his, if, he, if they'd have let him, He'd have nuzzled right in there with the pigs. That's what that says. 
Now, I don't, I'm sure some of you are beginning to make the connection that Jesus was trying to help people make when he was telling this parable. That we, as a, a race of people, have squandered the vast inheritance of our Heavenly Father. And we've come to the place where the slop that the pigs are feeding on looks appealing. We want that. A long fall. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, and I like the phraseology here because it's like all of a sudden the lights go on. Many of us in this room have had that experience. We've been nose to nose with the pigs and feeding in the, in the trough and all of a sudden it dawns on us, wait a minute, there must be something more. And it goes on to say, he says this to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger and he, he realizes that even the servants in his father's house are better off than he is. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he vows to return home and humble himself in this way. And then verse 20 says, He arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The only way that this is possible is that the father never stopped looking for him. Never stopped waiting. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. When Jesus said that he had come, he had come to heal the brokenhearted. He was talking about coming to restore what has been lost. When people are experiencing a broken heart, it's because something has been lost. Some hope, some dream, some relationship, some aspiration has been stolen from them or they've been deprived of it or you know, it's blown up in their face or whatever. And, and the result is a broken heart. So when Jesus said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted, he was saying, I've come to restore what has been lost. And this passage shows us in graphic detail what it is that the Heavenly Father sent Jesus and what it is that Jesus came to restore to us. And we're going to just focus in on four things uh, in that regard that we read about in verse uh, 22 and 23. The first thing that we see that the father restores to the son is the robe. The robe. The son is saying, Father, I, I have sinned. I, I don't deserve your favor in any, any way, but if I could just become a, a servant in your house just so I could have enough to eat, I'd, I'd be forever indebted to you. But the father says, wait a minute. And he calls to his servants and he says, bring my son's robe. When it says in verse 20, 
uh, to bring out the best robe. The, the language in the, in the original is the first robe. Bring the primary robe. The one that was designed for him. The one that belongs to him. The one that is, is his alone. In fact, when it says, and put it on him, in the original language is, let him sink into it. Now, how many of you know that there's like a thousand kinds of jeans? Have you ever been shopping for them and try to find one that fits you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. I happen to found them and I'm wearing them today and you know what? I love it because... And, you know, well, this is probably more information than you want to know. But, <laughs> but, you know, these are the kind of uh, button fly type. And eventually they wear out. It's not a good thing because then you got... Well, anyway. <laughs> so I'm on the verge of almost having to retire these things because the button holes are kind of wearing out on it. But I don't want to because I can put them on and I feel like they fit me, you know? And he was talking about bring the robe, bring the primary robe, the one that was tailor-made for him, the one that was designed for him, and let him sink into it. What was he talking about? What, what, was the, what was he alluding to? What was Jesus describing when he gave us this information? He was talking about righteousness. Righteousness. We were talking earlier in the service about the holiness of God. Those two terms, holiness and righteousness, are very closely tied. You and I were designed for righteousness. It's interesting, though, how far we've come that we don't even, a lot of us, lose track of what that even means or looks like. And pardon me for this um, graphic illustration, but it, it's, it helps me. You know, often on television you'll see these infomercials or, or um, you know, even uh, uh, network broadcasts or something like cable show about uh, children who are in desperate need for food or medical attention in, in some third world country. And I, I, you know, occasionally I'll sit and watch that, but frankly it's just really hard to. So sometimes I'll just turn the channel because I, I, it, it just breaks my heart. But when I consider the fact that there are vast numbers of people around the world today who don't know, they have no idea of what it's like to live with a full belly. They don't know what that's like. Every day of their existence, they are hungry. And that's their world. That's their understanding of what life is like. They don't know what it's like to be satisfied. And a lot of us, because of our We've gotten so far away from our Heavenly Father, we don't even know what it's like, what righteousness is like. We have no idea. We don't know what we don't know. But Jesus said, you were, he, when he was describing this scene between the Father and the Son, he was saying to us, I've come so that you can know what you were designed for. Righteousness. Put on the robe that was made for you. The one designed for you. And sink into it and find what it is to live a life of holiness. Read with me. 
the passage of Scripture, the verse of Scripture that's before you now on the screen from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, the first part of that verse. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You know, sometimes we think... Uh, about this exchange of our unrighteousness for his unrighteousness and we think of it as discarding all the rotten bad things in our lives for all of the good things of God and that would certainly be true but you know the Bible also describes um, that our righteousness our attempts at right living the good things that we try to do in this world the Bible says those are as filthy rags in comparison to the holiness of God. So this exchange is not about just, you know, discarding all of the rotten things that we do. It's saying that the, the, the holiness of God, the righteousness that he wants to, to wrap around us and for us to sink into and enjoy and understand and live in is something so far beyond what we know and experience apart from God, that we can't even grasp it. We can't even grasp it. What we think is good and holy and right, the Bible says, you know, and and it isn't a put down, it isn't meant to make us feel bad, it's to say, you know what? In comparison to the holiness of God, what what you think is right and righteous is as filthy rags. Let's lay aside, you know, you don't just take a guy who's fresh out of the pigsty and put on this robe. He's gone through some process of being cleaned up. And the tattered and torn garments have been hauled out, probably burned. <laughs> and he's been washed. And that's, the Bible describes again and again about how Jesus shed his blood so that we could be washed, so that all that filth could be swept away and, and then we can sink into the holiness of God. And it's, it's a great thing to know that it's not something I manufacture or I am required to manufacture. It's something I just simply put on. The second thing that we see here that has been lost and restored, uh, the representation of that exchange is with the ring. He tells his servant, get the ring, put it on his finger. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about three things. The first is covenant. 34 years ago, this May, this woman sitting here in the front row put this ring on my finger. And when she did so, she was entering into a covenant with me. And a covenant is different than a contract. A contract defines the reciprocal promises and the the parameters of the promises that two people or two organizations uh, enter into with each other. I'll do this and that means that you do this. You do that and then I'll do this. There's a there's a back and forth. There's obligations on either side that, you know, if you fail to hold up your end, then I'm free from my, my obligations. That's a contract. A covenant is I promise 
regardless of what you do or don't do, to do this. And she put this ring on my finger those many years ago and was saying to me, I'm going to love you. And 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 I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. When the hair on the top of your head disappears and starts coming out your ears, I'm going to love you. (laughs) I'm going to love you. I don't care what you do or don't do. I'm going to love you. The father was saying that when he placed his this ring on the son's finger and God is saying that about us too. Come to me. I love you. I love you. The second thing that that ring represented was identity. It was a signet ring. That means that it had the um, uh, etched into it in some form symbolism that represented uh, the fact that he was a son of this man. He was a member of the household of this uh, wealthy, prominent man. And so he could use that, he could press that into uh, some medium like wax or clay or something like that to, to say, you know, I, I, I am a, 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 a child of this prominent family. I, I, I am a, a member of the family. And um, you and I, I, when I, when I ask, if I were to walk around this morning and get you alone and just say, who are you? Who are you? Now, I know your name, most of you. But if I were to ask you, who are you? What would you say? What would be the first thing that pops in your mind when I ask you, who are you? Would it be what you do? Who are you? I'm a nurse. Who are you? I'm a school teacher. Who are you? I'm an engineer. Who are you? I'm a police officer. Would it be that? Because if if that's what would come to your mind first and foremost, that's that's not, not sufficient. That's what you do. That's not who you are. If I asked you, who are you? I think God would want us to think first and foremost, I'm a son, a daughter, I'm a child of the king of kings. That's who I am. That's who I am. It doesn't matter what I do or don't do. It doesn't matter how many, you know, how much of the alphabet follows my name in terms of degrees and so forth. It doesn't matter how much money I make or don't make. It doesn't matter any of that. I am a child of God. The third thing that that ring represented was authority. This young man could go anywhere and say, in the name of my father, I want this done. And there would be no question. The servants throughout the house and throughout the, the region Wherever this man's authority extended, it was also his authority. He has the ring. And we have a God in heaven, amazingly, 
who is extended to those of us who have come to faith in him, his authority. And, and that, you know, frankly, that subject is so vast, so big, I'm not even going to take time with it today. I just want you to consider, just let that thought sort of get a hold of your heart, your soul, your mind today, that the king who spoke a word and created everything that is, let there be, and it was. That God, with that authority, is extending something of the same to each one of us, his followers. Now that's a long way from a pigsty. The third thing that we see here, uh, oh, let me not get ahead of myself. Read with me from John chapter 1, verse 12 in, in support of, of what we've just been talking about, the ring. John 1, 12, read with me. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now the third thing that we see here represented in this passage about what he, Jesus, died on the cross, what he had come to um, suffer for, to purchase for, restoring what has been lost. The third thing was the sandals. The sandals. Verse 22 says, he, he tells the servants, bring the sandals and put them on his feet. Now, you know, there's only one other place in all of the Bible that I know about where people are told to put shoes on indoors. Because like many of you, when I come to your home, I take my shoes off at the front door and, uh, you know, that way I won't bring whatever it is from the outside onto your carpets and whatnot. But in those days and in that culture, it wasn't about just keeping the house clean and so forth, keeping the, the rugs in a pristine state. It was a, a, an act of humility. It was, a, it was an act of respect. You don't wear your shoes in someone's house. And that's why when, G, when Moses was at the burning bush, God said, Moses, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. So it was out of respect and humility. And so that's, that's the... Uh, the, the context and when the father says to the servant bring sandals for his feet it's a startling moment they're not out on the curb somewhere they're in the confines of the master's house and he tells the servant put shoes on his feet it's the it's the the opposite of the the humility and the respect that people would show and when they would visit a home it's He's, he's saying, you don't need to do that. And, and it's, it's more than that, but it has to do with being a person of value and worth and purpose. The other, I mentioned there's one other place in the Bible where this happens, and, and it's when the children of Israel are getting ready to leave their slavery in Egypt, and they're getting ready to journey in the wilderness towards the promised land, and they, they are celebrating the first Passover. And many of you would know that story, so I won't go any farther with it. And the Lord says to them, as they're eating the Passover um, supper, that they're supposed to do it with their shoes on. Why? Because they're going somewhere. They're no longer going to be slaves. They're no longer going to be in bondage to Egypt. They're going somewhere. They have a purpose. They're en route to their destiny. And so when the father says, bring the sandals and put them on, 
on my son's feet. It's a mighty transformation from a, a wayward child who has no idea who he is or what he's about to, to saying, you have purpose. We're going somewhere together. You don't need to cower. You don't need to uh, feel like you don't belong. You belong. This is your house. And we're going somewhere. Read with me from uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Stand therefore, read it with me, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's a lot of, uh, mis I think, misunderstanding or mishandling of this verse, and I don't mean to say that I, you know, I'm, I'm the sole depository of all scriptural wisdom. That would be very far from the truth. Uh, but a lot of people, I think, miss the significance of what it's talking about when it says have your feet shod or uh, have the shoes on your feet that relate to the gospel of peace or the preparation of the gospel of peace. But it's real simple. It's that the gospel prepares me for whatever the world throws at me, for whatever I encounter. The gospel pre is all the preparation that I need. Whatever God would call you to, whatever God would call me to, whatever high destiny and purpose he has in mind for you, the gospel is all you need. So a lot of times people kind of disqualify themselves. They say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about God. I don't know enough about the Bible. How could I ever serve him? How could I ever be useful to him? I'm such a nitwit. I'm not... And, and this verse tells us all we need to know is the gospel. And somebody right now is saying, well, what in the world is that? It's really simple. The gospel is the good news that we were sinners, separated from God. God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins so the bridge could be built so we could know him. That's the gospel, period. That's all we need to know. That equips us. That, that uh, glorious good news is the preparation for anything God would call us to do. Our testimony about the gospel is all we need to face down any of life's circumstances, to be used of God in any way, the preparation of the gospel of peace is what makes our purpose, our destiny possible. The fourth thing that we see here is in verse 23. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Celebration, joy. Come, let's have a party. And I, and I like the way it's, it's uh, worded here. It says, bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. I want to party, the father says. I want to party. My son is home. And our Father in Heaven, you know, he, most people, most of the representations that we see of God are angry. Have you noticed that? Most of the times when you see people depicting God or describe Him, or certainly the images that we compile in our brain about God is of an angry, you know, scowling, frustrated <laughs> God in Heaven. But that isn't him. Whoever that is, it's not him. 
And if you encounter that kind of imagery in your head, that's somebody else. That's not God. This, Jesus said, this, this is the Father. Now his son has just taken his inheritance and blown it in a matter of days. He's done everything contrary to his training, contrary to his upbringing. He has misrepresented the family. He has brought, you know, he could easily be saying to him, you know, you have shamed us. But he's not. He's saying, I want to party. I want to party. And there's something about the joy of God that cannot be described. And when it gets a hold of our lives, it transforms us. It transforms us. And the brokenhearted, Jesus came to, to pay uh, that price at Calvary's cross so that there could be joy. So there could be joy. Read with me from uh, John chapter 15, verse 11. And stand, would you? Here we go. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Jesus came to restore what has been lost. That we could know righteousness. That we could know relationship. That we could know purpose. And that we could know joy. <laughs>